Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. This is Mike Diebler, and welcome to episode 55 of the OCR Underground Show. We're trying to show you better and smarter ways for your OCR training. As always, thank you so much for joining us this week. And to check out the show notes for this episode, just visit ocrunderground.com slash episode dash 55. Uh, well, I got a great episode for you. I'm going to change the format a little bit. I have two interviews that I've actually been uh, sitting on for quite a while. So I'm going to cut back on our research review for this week because I didn't want this to turn into a super long episode. Um, but these are two really great interviews that I really just want to get out to you guys. But um, before we get into the interviews, one thing I do want to take a few minutes to talk about to start off uh, today's show, and that is based off a, a post I recently did and got some good feedback from. And it's all about data. And if you've seen in the, the obviously in the fitness world, uh, the amount of technology that is being implemented is pretty crazy. And some of it is absolutely awesome and, and provides us a lot of good quality information, while others might just be too overwhelming and unnecessary. And I, I recently did a post just talking about how the point I wanted to make was that I don't want to rely on one single thing, um, that we have to take into account all different types of things when we're tracking uh, things. And in this particular case, I was talking about kind of my recovery and my um, motivation to work out essentially. So the idea was, you know, one morning I woke up and I had a, a pretty long and challenging run that I was going to do. And when I started thinking about it, I really didn't want to do it. And I, I couldn't really come up with a good reason like, you know, my knees bugging me or, you know, something like that, or I'm overly sore. It was just, I don't know, something's just doesn't feel right. And I don't think I want to do this. So how you feel is, is a big indicator. But, you know, sometimes we get inside our own heads and it's more of a mental thing that's holding you back. So this is where I, I like to just look at some other things as well and a couple things that I constantly track, I look at heart rate, I look at my heart rate variability, and I look at my sleep. And I think these are three simple things that you can do that do give you a lot of information. So I think sleep's number one. If you're just consistently getting poor sleep and you're trying to train really hard for a competition with bad sleep, obviously this is a, 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 a recipe for disaster. So I looked at that first and actually my sleep was pretty awesome. It was, um, I used an app called sleep cycle and it, um, you know, measures the a bunch of different things. But one of the things I'll look at is the quality of sleep. And it actually was one of my best nights ever. And, and I wasn't tired in the morning. I was pretty rested. So I, I couldn't really contribute anything to sleep there. Then when I looked at my heart rate and my HRV, everything there was normal. And we've talked a lot about HRV or heart rate variability on previous podcasts. Uh, so you can check some of those episodes out. But just a quick review, looking at your heart rate variability is, is a, one way that we can try and measure our, our recovery and, and specifically with our nervous system, looking at that balance between our um, 
our uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems or that fight and flight, fight or flight and rest and digest. And just give us an idea. Are we super stressed and our, our central nervous system's not quite ready to handle another hard workout? Or are we pretty recovered and, and ready to take on more stress that we're going to receive from that workout? So that's essentially what heart rate variability is doing. So it's something that I just measure every morning and kind of look at uh, based on other things, how I'm feeling and uh, how I trained. Am I pretty recovered or uh, or not? And it'll just give me an idea of maybe I should take it easy or, or no, looks like all things are cleared and we can push a hard workout. So I like to look at everything because I don't want to rely on just one thing because maybe there, you know, it's technology. There might have been something that was uh, an error and misreading, something along those lines. So I'm not going to base everything on just one thing I see on, on an app or something like that. But I wanted to look at all these things and it made me kind of realize that my lack of motivation uh, to work out was really just as simple as that. I just wasn't motivated. And I, um, for whatever reason, just didn't really want to go out there and, and take on this hard run. But looking at all the other information, I decided that, you know what, I think it's safe to proceed with a tough workout. I'm, I'm going to suck it up. And, you know, this is where that mental training and that grit comes in handy where it's like, yeah, even though I don't feel like doing this today, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, you know, looking once I finished looking at my numbers, it's a run I've done before. And it was actually, a, you know, maybe not my fastest time, but it was better than the previous time I did it. And it still was a good a good time. My heart rate looked good throughout the run. And, you know, hindsight, I'm really glad that I did it where it would have been easy to skip that run and just say, you know what, I need an extra day. Um, sometimes that is the case. And maybe you have been pushing it super hard. But again, I couldn't really justify anything like that. I, I didn't have a super hard workout the day before or anything like that is I'll just admit that I was being lazy, unmotivated and Obviously, that happens to to all of us. So this was just a way to kind of talk myself into doing the the run when maybe otherwise I would have just uh, done the alternative, which would probably been nothing, um, or or at least doing an easy run when I didn't. I I could have definitely handled a harder run. So just wanted to share that. Um, and you can um, I'll put a, a link to the show notes with some of the apps that I use and that post that I did, so you can see some of the readings that I'm looking at. But out, shortly after I, I did this post. I was talking with another client where she uh, forgot her heart rate monitor for a couple workouts and was kind of saying that she felt like she didn't even work out. And it wasn't because she didn't get a good workout or anything like that, but sometimes we are so caught up in you know, steps and heart rate and, and all these other things that if we don't track a workout, we feel like it didn't count. And I just want to send that friendly reminder out there that technology is great, but don't let it hinder you as well, where it's going to get into the way of doing something where you forgot something like, like a heart rate monitor. And now I don't want to work out because what's the point? I can't track everything. So uh, these help us work out and they help us, you know, find our pacing and our, and our uh, heart rate zones a little bit better that we're trying to hit. But we got along a long time without any of these fancy tools, and we can still use things like as simple as perceived exertion or, or something like that, where we don't need anything. You know, the number one is get out there and move and, and do your workout. And if you can track it and, and monitor things like that, that's great. But don't make it negate that uh, you just because you forgot something, you, you won't get an effective workout or it doesn't count because you can't track your, your calories or your heart rate or, or anything like that. So again, just wanted to, to share some of those thoughts that I was having because I, I love data and I love all the information that it can provide us. But at the same time, sometimes it's overwhelming. So 
uh, in the beginning, keep it simple. Don't don't involve a million different apps and tools to to tell you if you're training right. You know, we always want to use um, common sense that if you're getting better, you're doing the right thing. If you're not, then you know you might want to look into some of these tools a little bit more. But um, that's my my rant for for this episode. So, um, like I mentioned in in this episode, I have two really great interviews that I wanted to get to. Uh, the first one I have on. Uh, re- uh, repeated guest, Anne LaRue, who is going to give us a race recap for Tahoe, the Spartan World Championships, which just happened pretty recently. And uh, this is just an amazing interview that we did that I really wanted to get out there as, as fast as I could, that she um, wanted to kind of share some of the mistakes that she made. And as an elite runner, you know, sometimes we think that it's just easy and they, they just go and, and they're so talented and, and do all these things, but how much training and planning and and all this comes into play with with the best that are out there, and things can go wrong sometimes. And she wanted to share some of the the things that she um, uh, that got her in a little bit of trouble, and, and she could have definitely done better. So she's going to talk a little bit about uh, fueling. Obviously, she has that that nutrition background, and uh, really, she shared some insight on if you are going to altitude, which a lot of these races are, how you might, uh, how your fueling choices might be affected by just uh, being at altitude. We get into things like uh, the truth about carb loading and how you might want to. Uh, focus on that if you are going to potentially do that before a race and even things as simple as as looking at the map and how using the map can really help with your um, your not just your race plan but uh, your fueling as well Uh, and then she just kind of gives us kind of a rundown of the event and actually just uh, a really great recap from from coach ann and in our second interview, I have on Josh Hankins with uh, Ultimate Sandbag and Dynamic Variable Resistance Training Systems. And the last couple episodes, we've been talking a lot about sandbag training, and we've actually mentioned Josh. And I figured, why not get him on here and talk a little bit about his system, his his philosophies, and um, you'll see right away how passionate he is about this topic and about training in general. And uh, one of the reasons we're actually uh, getting him to come out to my studio in San Diego to uh, to put on a private workshop about all of this because I just find it really uh, one fascinating, but also I've seen it firsthand how much um, this type of training can improve performance and and movement in general. So he's going to get into you know why he got started with the sandbag in the first place, um, but even more importantly some how the sandbag is really just a tool and how he has a whole philosophy and system that we we don't he doesn't just use a sandbag he uses lots of other different equipment but uh, this was a really key point uh, that i think he made was uh, we need to understand what our purpose is with our training and then select the tool that best helps us with that specific goal and hopefully once you listen to the interview, that'll make more sense. But um, versus just grabbing exercise tools that come out and just start randomly using them, but never really fully understanding how to use them in the first place. And and you know he's a, a great example of just how he went from pretty serious injuries and and overcame them with just better better movement, better training. Um, you know, using the sandbag as one example, but using lots of tools uh, to get there. But he will get into the sandbags. You know, the pros and cons of using it, um, but really helping you. Uh, discover different ways to challenge yourself by creating tension and different ways ways to overload the body versus just simply adding more weight, which is kind of the first place that people tend to go to. So um, lots of awesome things uh, in both of these interviews. So uh, 
I do want to apologize with Josh's interview. I had a ton of audio and internet issues. Luckily, it's all on my side, so my voice and uh, it might get a little bit messed up, but you hear him perfectly luckily. So uh, I do apologize and thank Josh for, for bearing with me while we, we got through this interview, but um, let's get right into it. All right, well, it's time for a race recap, and it's actually been a little while since we've done a recap on the podcast, so uh, we just had Tahoe World Spartan World Championships, so I figured this would be an awesome chance to uh, to do another race recap, and on with me, I have uh, my partner in crime, SGX coach and registered dietitian, Anne LaRue. How are you doing today, Anne? I'm doing wonderful, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, always a pleasure. And I unfortunately was not able to make it out for Tahoe and I'm super bummed, but I'm going to have to live vicariously through you. So figured who else better to talk to. And um, let's just first start, you know, your first impressions. What did you think of the race? Just, you know, real generally. Yeah. So generally, I mean, I had gone out two years ago for my first time out there and, um, you know, as always, they put on a really good race and, you know, I've just, really kind of looked at it and that if you if you compare it as far as for me if you compare it beast to beast with any other course so obviously I compare it to the Mont Beast and when I look at it you know race distance elevation gain obstacles um the actual Tahoe race you know, map to map was easier than the Killington Beast but as always a different venue um different altitude and different climate can definitely take what looks like your typical race and flip it on its head. And that's really kind of what happened to me um, out there. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to go through and give people some lessons learned from my, from my end. But, you know, as always, they delivered a great race. There was a lot of really good competition there. I think they did a really good job this year of making it so that the spectators had a lot to see from the venue, even going as far as to set up the ape hanger right down, you know, by the, registration area and so they they did a lot for the spectators so whether you were a racer or not you um you know there was a lot to experience while you were there so that was really cool yeah and i, I always like when they do that you know and, and sometimes it might make it harder to actually do the race because you're you're all the obstacles are loaded around the festival area but when you have family and friends come watch it's so much better when they can get pictures and videos and kind of see what you're talking about with these races versus you're out in the middle of the woods doing something and you might've gotten the monkey bars for the first time and no one ever saw it. So it's cool. And they, they make it very spectacle or spectator friendly. I agree. Um, and, and it's also, you, you, you draw energy from the crowd. So even though like I hate being watched on certain obstacles at the same time, <laughs> like people are really, you know, cheering you on and it's really awesome how much energy you can feel. And that little bit of pick me up that you get on a certain section that, you know, if that obstacle was out in the middle of the woods, you might not have moved as quickly. So there's something to be said about um, the excitement of the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing you, you brought up right off the bat was, you know, so it's the world championships and we hear Tahoe. And um, when you look at the course on its own, um, I think some people just have that mentality, like this is going to be the craziest race. It's going to be the hardest thing ever. But it's it's funny you said that you actually thought Killington was more of a challenge for the beast. And I actually just spoke with a few clients that were out there and they compared it to Big Bear, which I think is pretty similar to Killington. And in terms of like the mountain and the climb and 
I, you know, talking to them independently, a lot of them were like, you know, Big Bear was actually a lot harder in terms of the mountain, but there's other obstacles that I think make up for that. And that's something that we, we definitely should get into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, like I said, Killington was a slightly longer distance. It definitely had more elevation gain and the terrain itself going on in through the trails was a lot more, uh, was a lot trickier on the feet. So yeah, it's very interesting how, how um, different locations can, can really change it up. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, uh, before we get into some of the specifics that we're talking about here, um, if somebody's never gone to Tahoe, how is it different than any other race that they might might go to? And not not you know everything outside of the race, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Just the whole event that it is. Um, from a perspective of the fact that it's World Championships, or yeah, yeah, just kind of all the stuff that's going on. I mean, is it different, or you know, what what would you say kind of sets the World Championship apart compared to some of the other races? You know, I think when it's a, a big event like the World Championship, what's so awesome is that, um, you know, it does draw much more, it, it draws more competition and there's a lot more people and there's just a different type of feel than if you might go to a different race. And so it was much, it, everything was on a larger scale. And so I think as you arrive, you know, there's there's more around it. So for example, if you're going to go do a race, and you're just showing up race morning, or they may have an open house the night before, um, but it's you know just a small thing, or it's it's just for a, a short window of time. But whereas this, I mean, I had the opportunity with working with Spartan that I was out there since Wednesday, so I got to really see it all kind of coming together. But there was there was just you know everything was very spread out, and and everything seemed large. Like even just for example the the A-frame cargo net was twice the size of the normal one, you know? So I think you go to the world championships or when you go to the, any, any of the um, championship series races, just like when I was in West Virginia, it's just, everything's on a larger scale. So, you know, um, if that's your first race is one of the championship series, it, it's definitely a lot more overwhelming, at least to me it is, which is why I think it's for anybody who might be a little intimidated. That's always why it's great to start out with, a more local, small, small scale type thing. Yeah, awesome. So let's let's get into uh, the specific race. Um, maybe we can get into some of the layout. And I know you you want to share some of your experience and and really help our listeners learn from maybe some things that that happened to you during this. Yeah, I'd really love to you know talk about the experience that I had and then really help people understand where I went wrong and and why. You know, as a dietitian, from a fueling perspective, I recognize that there are components that I wanted to have go right, but the race, the it kind of dictated for me. You know, um, my mind got shifted because of the conditions of the race and how it really was a reminder that in order to have a really good race, a lot of components have to come together, and that's why planning and training. If you really want to be successful, planning and training for all the different pieces. And going in with a plan is so important and remembering that even when you go in with a plan, it can be shifted if you're not, you know, really, really focused, which is kind of what happened to me. So I can kind of talk about that, but I'd really love to also make sure that people understand 
the difference in fueling that it takes, let's say, for example, for me coming from Maine, living literally 30 feet above sea level to going to race at altitude in Tahoe and how no matter what with my training here, that altitude was going to, from a physiological perspective, change what my fueling regimen had to be, whether I liked it or not, um, and really get people to understand how that all ties in. So hopefully we can do a little bit of, of that knowledge as well. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. So what do you think was the, the biggest, you know, from a fueling perspective, maybe, what was the biggest thing that you think, what, what, I mean, was it the altitude or um, what was it about this race that maybe caught you by surprise or just didn't go the way that you wanted it to go? So I think it's important to, for people to understand what happens when we race at altitude. So when, what happens when we're at a higher altitude is that there is less oxygen available and so we want to keep in mind, right, that um, what dictates the type of fuel that our body utilizes, how much fat versus carbohydrate that it's going to utilize is very dependent on the amount of oxygen that it has available. So we're all burning a certain amount, whether we like it or not, and how, no matter how fat adapted we like for ourselves to be. And I want to start by saying, too, that make sure people understand before I get some people that kind of tune out. I am all about being fat fueled and fat adapted. And I think there's a lot to say. I've tried to do a lot with training myself to rely a lot less on carbohydrates and try to get my body to be fat um, efficient, metabolically flexible, if you will, over the last couple of years going from what I, you know, when I analyzed what I used to fuel with day to day on, especially on, higher volume training days years ago, I was getting in, you know, two, anywhere between 200 and 275 carbohydrate, grams of carbohydrate a day. Whereas now the, the most I'll take in on a really high volume day uh, might be 140, but that's, that's rare. Most days I'm getting in between 40 to 60 grams of carbohydrate now. So I've really tried to adapt myself to a lower carbohydrate, higher fat, but, and, and that's all great. We can do that so that our fat body is better at burning fat for fuel. But when our body is without oxygen, it's going to want to go to um, burning the carbohydrates. So I, I just want to start by saying that before I get people who hear me saying that, you know, your body's going to use carbs and people tune out. Um, so our body is going to use a percentage always of you know, fats and carbohydrates to fuel endurance activities. And based on how much oxygen we're taking in is going to dictate how much of that, what percentage of that is fat and what percentage is carbohydrate. And so when we have a larger percent of oxygen available, so for example, if I'm jogging down the street and I'm, and I'm with somebody and I'm talking and we can easily converse, I'm getting in plenty of oxygen and my body is using primarily um, fat for fuel and minimal carbohydrates. But if I was to say all of a sudden, hey, let's do some sprints between these telephone poles. And we did that. And while we were doing that, we couldn't talk because we were pushing so hard that we could, you know, we were barely even breathing, let alone talking. There's less oxygen that's available to my body. So it's going to want to switch to fueling carbohydrate because it just doesn't have the oxygen available to, to burn the fat. So when we're without oxygen, our body is forced 
to use carbohydrates for fuel. So when you're going to altitude and less oxygen is just available because of that altitude, then you're, you're just, your body's just going to need to utilize more carbs for energy all on its own, just because of the fact that where you are, there's less oxygen available. Now you add in the intensity of the race and how much you're pushing. And there are plenty of times during that race that I could not have carried on a conversation because of how hard I was pushing. So my body was burning carbohydrates almost doubly um, for the normal effort that I was giving and for the fact that I was in a different altitude that my body wasn't, wasn't used to. So I had already calculated that I needed to take in you know, uh, twice, probably twice, if not almost three times as many carbohydrates as I normally would on a normal training day. Um, so I tried to supplement that with normally I'll take just water in my hydration pack, but this time I made sure I put tailwind in there. So even the, the fluid I was taking in had the carbohydrates in there. And I had calculated out enough of my different gels that work, seemed to work well for me. I do a mixture of the Goo Roctane gels, some of the Huma gels that are more natural, um, and then some of what I like is called Vermont Untapped. And I do the coffee-infused Vermont Untapped, and that's just a straight-up, like literally Vermont syrup, not like maple syrup um, that's been condensed down, but the nice liquidy one. Mm -hmm. um, infused with coffee. Um, so I had already upped my amount of fuel that I was taking with me um, to offset that. But that is when the conditions of how they set up the race and then the weather took my plan and kind of derailed it. So so real, real quick before we, we move into that. Um, so was this when you say, okay, I'm going to altitude and I'm going to have to up the carbohydrate intake to help with this whole fueling. Were you mainly focusing like day of, or were you kind of building up to something like this? Yeah, I was mainly focusing day of because if it, because, um, you know, my activity level in the days prior was nothing that great. Um, I, I didn't want to do anything really strenuous and I, I was working the day prior. So I wasn't able to get in a whole lot of activity. I, I worked a lot on my hydration. I, I tried to really stay hydrated to keep my blood volume as high as it could be. Um, but taking in extra carbohydrates in the day of, I knew wasn't going to help because my activity was down. So I didn't want mm -hmm. to be extra then. I just knew that when, um, when race day came, it was going to have to happen there. So I kept most because my, because my activity was low. I kept my carbohydrates where I normally would have, um, on a, like normally on a, normally on a, on a day when I'm not doing activity, my carbs will go way low, but I kept, I kept the carbs as if it was an active day, but I didn't go above that because of the altitude, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I know, or I'm pretty sure, I know we've talked about this before. I believe it might've been on a previous episode or might've been in one of our, our training programs, but that's essentially, you know, a better way to carb load, right? When a lot of people just go crazy you know, right. the day of, day before, the week before, whatever, and they don't consider their activity levels because sure, you want to super compensate with extra glycogen storage, but at the same time, you, you can only take in so much. And if you're not being as active, which you're probably not, you know, the week or at least a few days leading up to a race and you just go crazy with your carb intake, well, now you're in a 
huge surplus and probably storing excess, you know, energy that you're not going to need. And exactly. Yeah. 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 The carb loading comes from not taking in more calorie uh, carbohydrates per se, but from the fact that you're reducing the, the glycogen usage from the activity. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I just want to make sure everybody understood kind of how you went about that. So um, yes. Yeah. I okay. only factored in the extra carbs for the actual time in the race. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So then, so what, what about the, uh, the race that kind of threw, threw a wrench in your plans? Yeah. So, so right from the get go now, so I did this race two years ago, 2016, and basically the course was kind of the opposite of where it was this year. So a lot, so the, what was in the last five or six miles last year was kind of in the first five or six miles this year. So the swim was towards the end. It was like one of the last things you did before you headed down the mountain for the final little gauntlet. Whereas this time from the starting gate, you were basically on an up ramp to the swim. That's basically what it was. You know, you, you headed out the gate, you did your typical, you know, over walls and hurdles and stuff, which I which I see as kind of their way to kind of like weed out the crowd as they mm. those hurdles and get, just to get people to lose their momentum. Um, then as you were going up, you know, they did have the hoist, was I think obstacle three or four, which was pretty cool because you don't typically see the hoist so early on in the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it did actually, you know, you could tell because this was the first time I got to the Hercoise and every bag was being utilized. <laughs> and it was cool because I decided I, which I usually, if there's anybody else there and they're almost done with a bag, I'll usually go for that one because I know that there's no possibility that the, the, um, that it's stuck somewhere, something like that, you know, so I know that the pulley works well. And uh, so I actually, I went to the one that I saw Alyssa Holly was on and was almost done. So I took that as an opportunity to like wish her luck and everything. Cause I think she's a really strong, I really respect her as a nice strong athlete. So they had that. Yeah. Every single bag was taken. So, which is typically why they don't seem to put that one so early on when there's a pack there. Um, got through that. And then I was like, okay, time to take in a fuel because I've just been going uphill this whole time, burning a lot breathing very heavy, just went through that quick strength base. And I know we were continuing up the hill. So I decided to take some fuel in then. I had been sipping on my tailwind as well. So I was feeling good. Um, In a race like this, you can't always compare. If you don't live at altitude, you can't compare yourself to the masses of the race. So there were a few women that I normally raced with on the East Coast. So I used those as kind of benchmarks to see where I was always running my own race, but still keeping in check with um, how my people from the Northeast were doing. And it was feeling really good at that point because I was, they had gone out ahead of me and gotten ahead of me initially, but as we were getting towards the top, I was actually getting past them and going. So that was a good uh, benchmark for me. Got to the top in the swim and it was very interesting because two years ago when I raced, my coach, uh, Kieran McCormick, had said, look, they may have two um, life jackets. One is going to be a zip-up vest and the other one is going to be one of those orange ones that like loops around your neck. He said, go for the vest, zip it up, and that one's going to cover you more and it's going to insulate you more so the water won't feel as cold. So that was great advice because he was absolutely right where that covered me was nice and warm and where I was exposed felt like knives stabbing into me. <laughs> water was so cold. Um, 
And so what was funny is this year, they actually said to us at the start line, um, elites have to use the orange ones. You cannot use the zip up ones. So if somebody realized that people were (laughs) realizing (laughs) of that, um, but they said you have to use the orange ones. So, you know, I knew mentally that the water was going to be cold. So as I was walking up to the swim and I knew it was coming, um, I just, you know, after the fourth obstacle, knowing this swim was the fifth, that's when I started to plug my, my mental game. And that's where, you know, practicing mental strength and mantras really during training makes a difference during the race. So I knew to transition after the fourth obstacle into getting my head wrapped around the fact that I was not going to stop. I was going to get that life jacket on and just keep going in the water. I wasn't going to think about it. I was just going to get in there. Um, and breathe because it takes your breath away, but you just breathe. And so I practiced that. I got in the water. I, uh, I realized that if I took, I had a long sleeve shirt on. So I realized that if I took the sleeve, pulled it down around my hand and opened my hand out, like a kind of like a duck's foot, if you will, to push a lot more water with that. So I was on my back and just pushing, um, the water got around the buoys and got out and it actually wasn't as cold. So everything was all good at that point. Uh, The wind was starting to blow and the clouds were coming in, but I just kept telling myself, the wind is drying your clothes. The wind is drying your clothes. (laughs) Kind of mentally was okay with the wind. Uh, Then you got to the top of the mountain and there was like, I don't know, maybe seven, six or seven obstacles up there all in a row. So you got up, uh, you know, you did the sled drag, and then as soon as you got done the sled drive, you just walked right over to the Atlas carry. And by this point, the wind is whipping and it's cloudy, uh-huh. you know. Um, then they send you into the, the double um, barbed wire. So you're down on the ground and that's rocks and gravel and, you know, miserable there because the, the wind is blowing. So I did a modifications of crawling and rolling and all of that. Um, when you came out, that's when you headed over to the, the dunk walls. I mean, the uh, rolling mud and then the dunk wall. And that's where it got bad for me because in the swim, if you think about it, you're getting in the water, but you'd never fully submerged. In, in this one, when you got to the dunk wall and had to submerge your head fully, that's when it got really unpleasant because now you're just head to toe wet and you had already been cold because of the the blowing wind and everything and so then once my hair and my entire body was wet again that's when it started become really cold, becoming really cold and then the the chilling you know the chills and everything right after that was the slip wall got up over that um after a couple tries and then headed over to the the spear throw which was followed right after with the twister mm. The wind was whipping, so I was hoping it was going to help that spear just fly right into that hay bale, but it did not happen. (laughs) (laughs) So ended up doing, at the very top of the mountain, ended up doing the 30 burpees from the spear and then went right into the twister. And so for me, the challenge was my hands were still wet from the dunk wall, and now they were full of dirt from the burpees. So I'm headed over to the twister with freezing cold, wet dirt hands. And try as I might, I only got through a couple at night and I fell off. So I had to do burpees again. Um, so that's really pointed out to me my need to work on my, my grip. So that's now my focus um, 
I've always been a really fast person who can do a lot of burpees fast and, and everything, but I've, I've got to really get on my, my grip strength so that I'm not failing obstacles. But um, yeah, when I was at the twister, there was actually a gentleman on the ground shivering. He had a couple people around him. They had a blanket over him and they were waiting for the medics to come and get him because he was just shaking uncontrollably. So when you're cold and you see that, you're just, it almost just makes it that much worse. So, you know, uh, plowed through my burpees on that. And then the last thing at the top of the hill was a double sandbag. And they gave you, one of the sandbags was the, the pancake and the other sandbag was one of those oddly shaped um, rectangle bags, kind of like a bag or whatever. Um, so they purposely made it so that they were two things of different shapes, very uncomfortable. So I tried slinging one of them over. I tried slinging the bag over my shoulder and carrying the um, pancake first on one shoulder and then kind of in front of me. And then eventually I just shifted it all into one big pile in the front of me and like a, like a big bucket carry, mm-hmm. just kind of toughed it out. Um, that one was really mentally and physically challenging just because you were put through that whole barrage right before that and you were cold and wet. Um, so got down that and it actually wasn't until I was done that one and I started heading back down the mountain that I realized that I had been clenching my jaw from the cold that whole time. And it literally felt like lockjaw. It was crazy. I couldn't move my jaw and it hurt so badly. Um, and I think, and so that's kind of where my whole fueling plan derailed up there because that was a lot of time spent. There was a lot of energy spent, but yet I was too cold and my jaw was too clenched to think about fueling. So it wasn't until I got down the mountain far enough and warmed up that I realized, holy smokes, I am behind in my fueling. I need to take something in. So that's kind of where the derailment went for me. Um, And that's the important piece where I say that typically, you know, I'm usually very good that I watch my I watch my watch and every 30 to 45 minutes, I take something in. I really try to stay ahead of the hunger. I try to space it out. So I'm not putting too much strain on my digestive system at once. Um, but I don't even know how long I was on top of the mountain. I, you know, I fell off the plan. And by the time I realized it, I think I was already kind of behind the, the eight ball in that regards. So that's where, again, like I said, you know, the greatest laid plans can still flounder if there's conditions that really just took you outside of your your comfort and that's what ended up happening for me so looking back at all that I mean some of this is you know sometimes you can't plan for certain things I mean you know you know there's going to be a swim you know it's going to be cold but sometimes it's hard to really understand how cold it's actually going to be and just what obstacles are going to be around there like you said and what's back to back and um, so like looking back, if you got to race it again this weekend, is there, it, would it just be simply like doing a better job of staying on track of fueling or is there anything else you would have maybe done differently to help uh, avoid that? I think it really would have been watching the clock and instead of going with my normal 30 to 45 minute time span, I would have tried to take something in you know, maybe 25 to 30 minutes and really watching my watch. Um, I, 
I think that's what I would change is I would be a lot more regimented about um, what I should have looked at is, okay, there is a lot of obstacles in one spot and it's at the highest point on the mountain. That's going to use a lot of your energy up. So your need, your need for the second half of the race is going to be focusing. You're going to need to focus on fueling during the first half. And I, I thought through so many other components. And I think it's that, it's that humbling piece where you feel confident in something. Um, so you think, Oh no, it's okay. I got that. I don't have to think it through as much as I'm thinking through all these other pieces and you let your confidence become your downfall because Mm -hmm. I, I thought that I just, I've been practicing nutrition so much and it's what I do. And so I let myself be comfortable with the fact that I'll be fine. And so I dropped that lower on the list of things that I really needed to watch because I just felt like it was a, it was a, a habit of mine. I was good. Um, so I think that's, you know, it, again, it just goes to show that just when you get comfortable with something, that's what's going to take you down. So never yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it brings up a good point too, when, when the race maps are released, you know, it's always hard to say, well, you know, this is five miles in, or this is three miles in, that should be about this time. Cause you just never know with, you know, how bad the Hills are, how much the obstacles might slow you down, but at least if you can look at it and see, okay, when I get to this group of obstacles, like here's five in a row that are really challenging to me. So I'm going to be using a ton of energy. So if I haven't fueled up you know, right before this point, um, I'm going to need to make sure I do it right, right as I get through this or, or whatever, but that might be another way to help lay out, you know, when you potentially might fuel to, to help in specific spots, maybe. Yeah. And that is something, um, that I, that I do, like, for example, when the map comes out, well, now at least they have where they actually put where mile one, mile two, et cetera, Mm -hmm. which is nice. But again, like you said, you don't know, you know, mile one and mile two, those could be very hilly, whereas miles three and four are flat. So it's different. Um, but I do definitely, I try to time my fueling around not only, not only in the minutes within the race, like I said, the 30 to 45, but I will also look at it and say, okay, here's, here's a bucket carry. And so that's the time I know I'm not going to be running. So my stomach's not going to be going up and down. So I know that right before the bucket carry, that's when I want to take in a fuel because I won't be I won't be running right after I take it. And so, yeah, being strategic, but definitely, yeah, a look of the map. And that's, you know, I looked at the map as far as what I wanted to push. I looked at the map to really kind of plan out, okay, they have this heavy carry before this grip strength. So keep that in mind. Um, And yeah, I think, like, like you said, for me, I should have done what I always do, but I got too overconfident is I should have said, you know, this point, this point, and this point is where the fuels are going to happen. So absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when the map comes out, they look at it so that they have an idea, but year over year, getting more strategic with what you're looking at on the map is absolutely, you know, the best laid plan. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously when you have to go swimming in freezing water, it mentally changes things and to really just practice being on on point with you know like you said checking your watch or knowing when you hit a certain obstacle like i have to fuel now because that's probably the last thing you're going to want to think about when you're just shivering and, and right. just frozen so yes. let's uh so how did how did the race finish then just you know from that point you know you were kind of derailed but you you obviously you finished you you got back on track which i know is really difficult for for a lot of people to do but um, just walk us through the uh, more of the end of the race. 
Yeah, sure. So after, like I said, when I was headed down the mountain, it was freezing. And so I just kept, I, I thought creeping in my head, I'm not going to lie. And I actually talked with a few other women that I really, um, we often compete together. And we talked about the fact that there were multiple times in the race when it went through our head of, we just not finish, you know, like just totally quit right now. This is miserable. You know, we don't have to finish. I just could go take a nice shower and be warm. So there were times when I was running down when I just wanted to be warm. I wanted to be out of that misery. And I said, you know what, I could just completely just stop right now and be done. Um, but I reminded myself that that's why we race, right? These mentally, yeah, it's the physical, but it's the mentally challenging pieces that until we push through those, we only come out stronger on the other side when it's a truly mentally challenging thing. You know, when we're in our comfort zone all the time and we're always confident because we're doing well, that's one awesome thing. But when we go through moments where we're like, how am I going to even survive this? This seems so bad. Um, you got to think, you have to think about what am I going to be like when this is over and how is this going to make me stronger? So I kept reminding myself that th this is the mental challenges. This is why I decided to do these races is because I wanted to push my limits. Um, and so it was a race where that was definitely happening. So as I was running down, I was reminding myself like, this is very hard, but this is why you signed up. You didn't sign up for it to be easy. So there was a lot of mental at that point. And I just also kept telling myself, the further you run, the warmer you'll get, because I could see the sun hitting the mountain further down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you went down and it was really cool. Um, they had some hurdles again on the way down. And then when you got back into the festival area, they had um, Olympus and then they had that double A-frame cargo net, which was awesome. And then mm -hmm. In the center of that little ski lodge and village area, they had the um, the rope climb, which was cool because, it, like again, it was it was right down the center of the village. And then they sent you running through the little village with the shops and restaurants, which was awesome. And then when you came back around uh, um, out of that, you came to where they had built uh, Tyrolean Traverse and an ape hanger right down in the parking area. So that was cool because again, it allowed, you know, A-frame, um, I'm sorry, Tyrolean Traverse is usually out somewhere in the woods and a lot of the spectators don't get to see that. And so this cool that they were able to, and then the ape hanger, they had built a small water, you know, kind of like a pool underneath that. So you had one more opportunity to get nice and wet there. <laughs> Um, and they actually had some grandstands for like spectators to actually sit and watch, which I thought was really, was really cool of them to do that. So you had the Tyrolean Traverse and then the Ape Hanger. And then after that, you went over to the Yokohama Tire flip over there. And then you headed towards the, uh, the monkey, monkey twister monkey combination. Mm -hmm that they have but actually before that just for the elites they threw in another sandbag carry so if you only if you were in the elite you threw that extra component in and that was right before you literally dropped the sandbags and went right into that monkey twister monkey oh. um so and then they sent you they sent you back away from the festival area and up the mountain one more time um, for the last little loop, which was, you know, challenging. There were a lot of steep climbs on that, but it was all in the sun. It was all 
you know, wide road, gravelly stuff, nothing too tricky terrain wise. They had a few walls there, you know, your eight foot wall, perhaps the inverted wall. Um, and then, yeah, you ran up and then you zigzagged your way back down and came right into the festival area. And the last two obstacles were the fender and the rig. And I was surprised because the rig during a beast is always typically a combination of everything, you know, from the, the rings to the rod, to the ropes, but they actually did this one just as rings, rod, rings, um, which which was nice at the end of such a race. And it also, I think, gave people a, a chance to feel successful at yeah, the end. Yeah. You know, because two years ago when I was there, it was a very challenging rig. A lot of people were failing. And the last thing, the last thing, honestly, you really want to feel or you want your family members to watch you do at the very last component of a race, like within sight of that finish line, is to fail something and have to do burpees. I, so I, I, I kind of liked that they did that because it gave people an opportunity to feel successful and proud at the end. And it gave the family a chance to really uh, cheer people on and be excited for them versus having to, you know, yeah. cheer them through their last set of 30 burpees before they walked across the finish, you know? Mm. So it was nice of them to do that because yeah. I think it's important for people to feel successful in that last you know, half to quarter mile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'm sure in, for Spartan, they don't want all the spectators that might be thinking about doing a race to see a sea of people doing burpees. Yeah. finish just miserable. So no, I, I agree. It, it's the more people that can finish like on a high versus like, oh, the finish line's, you know, 20 feet away and it's going to take me about five minutes to get there because I have to get through these burpees and I'm just, yeah. so no, I agree with that. Um, so I do, I want to ask you, you know, so who knows where uh, world championship is going to be next. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if the choice came down to, I know two common places that people say are Killington or Tahoe, what would your pick be? You know, I, I'm torn because I, I'll tell you, I love Killington. I, I want there to always be Killington. I think that there always will what I think is, you know, I'll be, I'll be selfish when I say this, it just when people live at altitude and because their bodies adapt, um, because there's less oxygen available and the body adapts by creating a larger blood volume so that there's more oxygen to carry to the muscles, that becomes an adaptation that the body makes, which means that when you come down out of that altitude to a lower, lower altitude, you, you basically have, I don't want to say this and rub people the wrong way, but you almost have a, it's like a legal performance enhancing advantage because you now have more oxygen supply to the muscles and there's also more oxygen available. So if somebody comes from living at a high altitude coming down to a lower one, their ability to run is better, right? Mm -hmm. sense what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like a greater blood volume, they have greater... Um, oxygen delivery. So when people at altitude come down to um, come down to lower areas, it's almost like there's there's still even just no way that I could compete with them. So when you know, I love you know when you have something like Killington and people that are used to training, you know, thousands of feet higher, and they come down, even that feels easier for them. It's almost like I, I don't I want people that live in this area to compete at this area. If mm -hmm. that 
sense, you know, because I think it's like, it was very challenging for me to go out to, um, to the altitude of Tahoe because I just live so close to, to sea level. So at least race others in the Vermont area, I have a fighting chance. But when I go try to race with people whose normal training run is at 14,000 feet and my normal training run is at 30 feet, um, it just kind of makes it like, you know, I'd like to at least have the hope that there's a way that I can compete really well. But when it's actually like a physiological disadvantage, it, it's kind of a bummer. So um, I don't know that I want the world championships and all of these people coming to Vermont because then it's going to feel like, like a mountain. I felt like I really had good odds at now. I, I <laughs> like there's just no chance because that's part of what makes it fun. Yeah. Um, I think it's really awesome that they have it in Tahoe because that really is a huge, impressive venue. I love Vermont for the fact that it is the birthplace of Spartan, but I love, you know, Tahoe is just like amazing. It's just taking it all in. It's just, it's just huge. It's, it's so vast and it's, it's such a beautiful place in its own regards. I, I'll find it very interesting to see because they're teasing out a lot with asking all of these different countries, if you could choose which country would you want it to be in, mm-hmm. which would be cool. But I know for a fact that I couldn't afford to go to another country for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's a tough decision. So we'll, we'll yeah. just have to wait and see what, what they pick. And um, I'm sure it'll be a, a fun, challenging venue. We can at least uh, expect that. But, yeah. um, but I, I wanted to thank you. I mean, I hope people were taking notes because there were just some great tips in here uh, on top of the race recap to really prepare for not just doing Tahoe or world championship, but really any race we can, we can take in a lot of stuff from this. So thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and, and some of these awesome tips. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. And I just want to, you know, I'm getting ready to wind down my season. New Jersey will be my last race at the end of this month. And I think the only other thing that I really want people in your audience to be thinking about, and I know we've talked about this is, you know, really think about the importance of having an off season, really think about, you know, the demands you've put on yourself during this race season. And I know we all want to be stronger next year. Um, but, but, you know, pushing really hard over the winter months is not the way to get stronger next year. It's really by taking the off season and recovering. And so I think, having a really solid plan of that, deciding what, what race is going to be your last and your cutoff and thinking about being good to your body and being strategic so that you can go back and, and have a better 2019 season using the off season to learn what you can and not to kill your body. You did enough of that over the course of this year, let it recover. And the best way to go into 2019 nice and strong is to let the body let the body get stronger through recovery. So I think that's the last bit of parting knowledge I want to make sure people are really thinking about because I know once my last race in Jersey is over, that's exactly where my mind is is going. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, um, obviously, uh, I've been talking about this on the podcast and, and in emails, but it's something that both you and I are pretty passionate about because we've seen people who train year-round as hard as they can and they don't really have a plan in between those races to, to really get better for the next year. Instead, it just come, you, you limp into one season and when you're already like kind of hurt before the season really starts, you know, you're just trying to hang on and survive versus like getting better, progressively better with every race. So that's why we started talking and, and working on this program. So I'll put a link in the show notes, but if you guys go to ocrunderground.com slash mentorship, 
you can actually work with um, Anna and myself, and we are going to kind of lay out this plan for your off season, things you need to consider, you know, with your nutrition, with your training, with your running, um, just getting that better foundation on both sides of it. Um, so uh, if you're interested, check it out. It's, it's going to be a fun program and you guys are just going to learn a, a ton of stuff to really take care of your body, recover, make that your priority. I mean, you're still going to work out. Like sometimes people think, well, I want to do something. And it's like, we're still working out. It's we're being more, uh, specific and, and um, uh, just strategic about it to plan our, if we are going to have an intense workout and um, not just kill ourselves for the sake of killing ourselves, we're working out hard to get better at specific areas. So it uh, should be fun. Yes. All right. Well, thanks again. And I'm sure we'll have you back on here uh, on another episode. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. All right, in our next interview, I have on Josh Henkins, who is one of the creators of the Dynamic Variable Resistance Training, or DVRT. Uh, the idea behind this system was not just to create an exercise tool and program to create better training in the gym, but rather for elevating people for what they do in life and sport and in the real world. Josh has over 20 years experience coaching and has been able to present his system all over the world. He's worked with uh, athletes, uh, military forces, and just average population trying to help them improve performance and function. Welcome to the OCR Underground. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So we actually were talking all about you and actually Jessica last interview I had with uh, Coach Joseph Bautista, and I figured... Let's get you on here and dive a little bit deeper on some of these things and uh, just kind of have you talk about uh, not just sandbag training, although that's going to be a big part of it, about uh, your whole system that you have in place. So if you don't mind, uh, just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with you, what's kind of your background? How did you get into, into sandbags and then into this whole system that you've developed? Sure. I, I grew up, mostly my sport was basketball. Uh, I would spend hours upon hours at the park playing uh, during the summertime and uh, obviously, during the season, would play, played up, uh, walked on to the Arizona State men's basketball team. Uh, so it was quite a big passion of mine, but I didn't have any illusions of going professional or anything. People always ask me that. I learned at a pretty early age that I better be studying pretty hard because I learned what elite athletes were, even in high school, uh, you know, growing up in Chicago. There were some pretty amazing athletes that make you realize, like, going professional is probably not most of our futures. Uh, so something I learned in high school, uh, I was very fortunate to have a coach that was a strength and conditioning coach. He was a part-time strength and conditioning coach for the Chicago White Sox. And so he sort of introduced me to this world of strength and conditioning. I'm like, I didn't know this was a job. This is a, something you can do like for a living. You can like basically live in a weight room and train athletes. <laughs> so, you know, in high school, I thought that was really what I was going to do either that or, uh, coach high school basketball and do some strength and conditioning for the high school on the side. Uh, but during my time playing uh, sports, I suffered just some very bad injuries, uh, one to my right foot, uh, one to my low back. And those kind of plagued me throughout my playing career. Actually, the, the back ended up causing me to retire early uh, in college just because there was so much damage done that I remember we were doing conditioning sprints and I lost complete use of my right leg. Uh, so they, you know, unceremoniously retired me at that point. But like I said... I didn't have, you know, any illusions of grandeur there. So I always knew that I was going to do something else. But the problem was obviously now becoming someone who had chronic pain. 
Uh, I was in school at the time for exercise science. So I thought, you know, I got this, I can do this. And something I learned very quickly in the university uh, was that what was happening in the actual industry was quite different than what we were learning in, in, in the university. And so, you know, a lot of strength coaches that were working with athletes or working at, at elite things, you know, our, our information at the university level was very outdated. You know, we were still very much into aerobic fitness. And, you know, I, I remember a class, we had an exercise prescription class where we had to show people how to set up the machines. So you can imagine, you know, how different it was at that time. And that was pretty much standard. So that was where I started with things. And then, I, you know, I, I, because I learned that there was a whole bigger world out there, I started doing as many internships with as many strength coaches as I could. So I was often the youngest, you know, in a group because I was just so hungry for knowledge, first and foremost, to help myself with my own injuries and then to have knowledge to help people in the future. And that sort of led us down sort of this organic path to where we are now. Uh, I like to say this was all very carefully constructed, but it was really a lot of just pieces falling into place over time and, you know, making a lot of mistakes and learning, you know, start having a bigger picture with fitness and being able to help people on a bigger level. I think we've all probably been there where uh, the education we're learning in school doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the real world. And it's cool that you kind of see that process there. Um, I know. Uh, so what brought you to um, sandbags in particular? Like what, what drew you into that interest in the first place? You know, I always drove me to taking, you know, educational courses was really a selfish endeavor, to be honest. Like, I wanted something that would fix me. Uh, having been a competitive athlete and now being someone who couldn't do very fundamental things, I'll give you guys an example. Like, you know, for me, sitting in a chair in class was difficult to do because my back just hurt all the time. Uh, you know, when I was, you know, in physical therapy, with the athletic trainers, basically, I got a bottle of narcotics and they said, take it when it hurts. Well, at that point, it hurt all the time. So I was constantly just popping pills because I was in pain. Uh, so, you know, I was always hungry for something that would make a difference. And there was lots of programs that maybe made some difference or, you know, they made some sense, but nothing had this dramatic impact upon me. And I remember it was about 2002, 2003, where a mentor of mine was like, you got to do this kettlebell program. And you know, I went and did one of the very first RKCs, even though I was kind of begrudgingly doing it because I looked at the information. At the time, a lot of us were like, I don't know, this kind of looks like what I could do with a dumbbell. I don't get it. Uh, but he was just adamant, like, you got to check out this thing, check out the system of what they're doing. And so when I went to the course, I remember Pavel coming out and sort of talking. And the, one of the first things he said is, you know, the kettlebell is just the vehicle in which they teach their philosophy. And I never, you know, having interned at a lot of strength conditioning facilities, and working with a lot of different strength coaches, I never heard anyone verbalize it like that. Uh, and it very quickly became apparent that, you know, what we were missing was this whole idea of movement. So it was really that sort of catalyst that gave me this idea that there is a bigger world than just exercises and just adding load to people, that there was this whole idea of movement and there was so much more that we were missing in, in traditional exercise. So I had asked Pablo, I'm like, where do I learn more about this? You know, I'm someone who just loves to grab as much information as they can. He said, well, you got to read the old stuff. And I'm like, you mean stuff from like the 70s and 80s? And he sort of chuckled. He's like, no, like the stuff in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And thankfully, with the internet now, we can do such things. And 
it's not the easiest thing to always read because the English, surprisingly, is a little different. Uh, so sometimes the interpretation of things, and they didn't obviously have the science that we had now, but you can make bridges and connections there <laughs> with what our current thing was. But the, probably the most interesting and probably the most misleading thing people have with sort of old-time strength training is that there wasn't the internet. So it wasn't like Arthur Saxon could post on Facebook to George Hackenschmidt his workout of the day or something like that. Uh, these guys had very separate philosophies and methodologies. So I tried to find commonalities. <laughs> and probably the biggest one that kind of intrigued me was this idea that in some form or another, they all talked about using odd objects. And they did so under the guise, even though they didn't have the science that we do today, of building you know, core strength or stabilizer strength. They, they verbalized it more as filling in the holes or you know, filling the gaps for real-world type strength training. And nowadays, we would probably use more verbalization like, you know, like I just said, core strength, stabilizers, and so forth. Uh, and, and so when I went down that path, I'm like, they, they listed all these different types of crazy objects like kegs and railroad track, you know, bars and, you know, you name it. But the thing, of course, being a former athlete, when everyone kept saying what the hardest thing was, I wanted to do that. And, you know, in some form or another, they all mentioned sandbag. And they all mentioned that being the most challenging implement. So I was the guy that's like, okay, I'm doing that. I want to do the hardest mm -hmm. thing. And so I did the traditional, you know, army duffel bag with garbage bags and duct tape. And I made my first sandbag in my garage. And you know, I think it only weighed about 80 pounds at the time. I'm like, I can lift way more than 80 pounds. And I went to work with it. And I was like amazed at how challenging 80 pounds was considering I was used to lifting so much more. And so I'm like, okay, there's something, there's probably something here. So what do you do as a coach? When you get excited about something, you put your clients all through it. So at that point, I was already training clients and, you know, at first they're like, oh man, this is hard. This is brutal. Oh my God. You know, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's awesome. But then the reality hit, you know, a few weeks later where I was like, you know, we stopped and the novelty wore off and I had to evaluate what type of purpose do we have with what we're doing? Are we actually creating success? Are we actually progressing people? Or did we just fall into the trap of using a novelty item and getting a new stimulus and they enjoyed it and like everything else? It's sort of like, sort of like you know, if a kid plays with a new toy, the new toy is awesome for about a couple of weeks and then they get bored of it. So I went and tried to find every piece of information I could on sandbag training, which the internet loves to share with me that I not, did not invent sandbags and I never claim I have. But when I went to look for the information, I was really shocked that there was such a shortage of information on the topic. For a tool that supposedly had been around for centuries, there's very little in the ways of <laughs> programming and methodology and progression and technique. Uh, I, I always say that was probably the biggest book I found on it was John Jesse's Wrestling Encyclopedia, or Encyclopedia of Wrestling, conditioning, um, where there's probably about maybe five pages devoted to sandbags. And so collectively, I, I just couldn't find a lot of content. So the thought came to me, there's, there's got to be a couple of things going on. Either A, the implement just isn't as powerful as I think it is. It is kind of a novelty item. Uh, or, or B, we just don't have a proper system of implementing it. Or even C, both, that we don't have the right tool, vehicle for it, and that we don't have a good system for it. So really, it sort of started with a friend of mine simply saying to me, if you could do this differently, what would you do? And I was just a strength coach at the time that was happy to, you know, follow sort of what the industry was doing. I didn't have the intent of creating something new. I sort of said, well, I would do this, I would do that, I would try to control this. And, you know, he's like, you know, we all have that friend that goes, hey, give me a couple of days, I, I got something for you. But he was that guy and he came back and had, had a company for me that would actually produce what I was saying. And that sort of started this process. And 
when I got my first family, it was like having your first child born almost. I'm like, this is so cool. Look at this thing. Uh, and what we did immediately is start applying that to clients and start trying to figure out a system. How does this thing work? What works? What doesn't? How should we think about this differently? Does this operate like everything else or does it have unique features we have to optimize? So over the first, you know, I would say four or five years, we really started to spend time building that system in place. And that's where we came up with our dynamic variable resistance training system or DVRT was that we found out that, that the sandbag that we created could provide something so unique that nothing else could. And that's something we're very adamant about that we don't just use random tools. We try to use the best tool for the job possible. Uh, whether that's our ultimate sandbag or not, we want to use the best tool. But to do so, you have to understand how those tools function and the best ways to optimize them. I loved how you mentioned like how you had to go back and find this stuff. And you, you know, there wasn't a ton of information, but you, you saw it there. And I think we all kind of get guilty of that shiny new object syndrome, right? Where we jump on the latest thing and then we jump to the new thing and then the new thing. And we never really understand why we did this in the first place. And back then they didn't have all the information. They didn't have the science and the technology behind it, but they were seeing results with this stuff. And that's, that's what matters. And now we're starting now that we have the science and the technology, it's finally catching up and we're going back to some of these old school approaches. And, and I think, you know, that's why you see so many things cycle where it's like, yeah, kettlebells are more popular, but how long have they been around? And, you know, all of this stuff, it's just, we're understanding a little bit better why we can use these tools. And I think you may not have invented the, the sandbag and there's different companies out there that, that do this. But I think what you do better than anybody else is help people understand why we use this in the first place. And when, people go to your website and sign up for your, um, your newsletter and get your, your daily emails on how much information you're actually putting out there. It's actually, it's absolutely incredible. And, um, you're obviously studying this stuff and applying it, which is really cool. And, um, I, and I've had the opportunity to hear you speak at perform better and, and some other conferences. And it's amazing when you see something change in a minute where like, okay, my squat wasn't great. And now I did this one thing and now I squat so much better. And I just had to use this tool. Like you said, it could have been a couple of things, but when I used the sandbag, that seemed to work really, really, really well for me. So um, maybe we can expand on a little bit more like with your system. So the, the thing I love about what you're doing is we can use this tool to either kick somebody's butt. Like you said, when you first got the, the sandbag, put your clients through the gauntlet and got them a good workout, a good sweat. And there's, there's that opportunity when it's there. But at the same time, you mentioned movement, and I think that's where we need to start, right? So we can use your system, use this tool to help improve people moving. So I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit on how this tool or, or just how your system in general takes a look at that movement first before we try and kill somebody with a tough workout. Sure. I, I think the answer lies in, in something you sort of alluded to where most people pick the tool and then they figure out what they're going to do with it. Um, what we try to do is we go, what's the problem? What are we trying to solve? And what's the best tool to address that issue? So it really comes back to this concept of functional training and something that we're more about than even the sandbag is trying to educate people on really what functional training is and why it's so necessary uh, from everyone from the athlete to the fitness enthusiast just looking to feel better or look better. And so the, the, well, if I ask a lot of fitness professionals what the term functional training means, I'll get something, an answer along the lines of, well, it's strength that builds real life. And I'm like, no, that's actually not what the term means. And if we do believe that that's the term, then we get into all sorts of trouble in understanding how to build progression and 
what we're actually trying to accomplish with these different tools and exercises. So really, functional training was developed almost back in the 70s as sort of a pushback towards the large amount of bodybuilding and machine work that had grown during the time. Because the age of machines is actually quite short from about the 60s and obviously to current time. So when you put that in the time frame of mankind, that's actually a very short time. Uh, and even bodybuilding itself has reshaped itself over the years where you know bodybuilding used to be far more holistic than what we see today. So we try to get people to understand you know, functional training first. So functional training is to train the body as it's designed to function. I know that sounds like a horrible sort of like, you know, <laughs> philosophy there. But the point is this, if my computer breaks, I can't fix it if I don't know how it works. And the human body in some ways is no different. If I'm having problems or I want to achieve a goal, I can't achieve that if I don't understand how the body works. Most people approach a workout with a set number of exercises or tools, whatever it may be, and they're really just taking a shotgun approach. They're hoping that what they've been told actually works, but they don't really know. You know, it's as no different than if my computer froze and I just start hitting it. That may work, but that's completely accidental, right? <laughs> it wasn't like I had a plan that was actually going to work. I didn't know what problem I was actually solving. So it, it's one of those things that the tool becomes so much more valuable. What we're trying to teach as a system becomes so much more valuable if we all come from a basis of understanding how the body works. I'll give you an example. If I ask most professionals in, in our industry, what's the foundational movement pattern that we as humans are designed to do, we'll get all sorts of interesting answers. I remember when you get answers like squatting, I'd be like, you know, why squatting? And they'll be like, because you've got to squat to the toilet. I'm like, you need a 300-pound squat to squat in the toilet? What are you eating? You know? <laughs> or you know, people go, well, deadlift, because you, you, know, you got to be able to pick up your laundry off the floor. I'm like, how much does your laundry weigh? Because you guys are <laughs> deadlifting way more than your laundry. And, and so they missed at the point that we're all uniquely designed for locomotion or walking. And, you know, no, and the problem with that is no one's gone to the gym and go, today's going to be a really badass walking day. Uh, you know, they're trained. And it's not that we have to replicate walking, but we have to understand what makes up those patterns because that's how we're designed to move and function. And so if we don't even understand that, and then it blows me away, and I don't blame them, but like it's our responsibility as professionals to know this stuff because when people come to help us, they're assuming we're the expert, that if we don't know these things, then we can't design programs, workouts, exercise, and progressions that really truly make people better and understand the value of the tools that we're using. And as far as the tools go, an example I give, if you ever went for surgery, and hopefully most people haven't, if your doctor walks in and goes, hey, give me a scalpel or a clamp, it really doesn't matter, you'd probably freak out. Uh, <laughs> you know, or even if a general contractor came to your house to work on something and you saw them using a hammer for the job of a saw, you'd be like, you're incompetent. What are you doing? And so our weights, our different implements as professionals are our tools to address different issues. And if we don't use them with great intent, we're not going to create the outcomes that we ultimately desire to achieve for ourselves and for the people that we're working with. That's awesome. And I, I love the word, you know, you just said that word outcome. And that's always what I tend to gravitate towards with functional training or, or not even just functional training, but I don't care what a, an exercise necessarily looks like. I want to know well, what outcome is this producing for that person, whether it is to you know, clean up their squat or, or to get their gait mechanics or their gait cycle better, more efficient. And that's what I think people need to really pay attention to is not, I saw this video on YouTube. It looked really cool and I want to try. And I'm not saying I never did that, right? We're, I think we're all guilty. That looked cool. 
let me just see. And then I want to experiment and play around and what did this do? But really understanding the outcome of an exercise, the outcome of your program in general. And when people are trying to, you know, just go to the gym and like, I'm going to hop to here, to here, to here, that's where sure you're moving and you're breaking a sweat and, you know, it's not all bad, but you know, we, we want that purpose behind it. And, you know, I think that's what you're excelling at with this system, whether it is the sandbag or, or kettlebell or whatever other tool it might be. And, you know, I, I like the fact that you brought up that, yeah, you guys have the ultimate sandbag, which is a great product and you can do so many different unique things with it, but you're also out there showing kettlebell stuff and you're showing TRX stuff. And uh, one thing I like that you do a lot of is you combine the sandbag with other stuff like dance. And because I think, you know, one thing you'll, you'll agree with is that one piece of equipment can't do it all, right? the sandbag does a lot of stuff that um, dumbbells won't do and the bands will do stuff that sandbags can't do and we can use them independently or, or we can combine them for, for different uh, appeal there. You know, I, I mentioned a couple, but what, like, why would I use a band with, with a sandbag or, or what could I do with, with something like, what, what are the benefits of maybe joining forces on these two different pieces of equipment? Sure. I mean, this starts off, you know, the same process of just even choosing the, this, the ultimate sandbag or a band in general where, okay, what are we trying to achieve? But I'll give you an example from, you know, I was just at a conference this past weekend. We were teaching how to squat. And so, you know, for a lot of people, most of the people that start an exercise program, they don't have very good body awareness. And even some people that are in the exercise program don't have good body awareness because they're just so focused on doing a task rather than the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and so bands, for example, are great vehicles in giving feedback. And so far too often, I think in fitness, we associate load as only challenging a movement, but load can be a great way to actually teach how to perform a movement because most of us, in fact, all of us do better when we have feedback. And so sometimes, you know, a verbal cue from a coach is great, but a lot of us are kinesthetic learners and a lot of us don't even know how this stuff feels. So if I don't know how something feels, having the feedback of some external resistance can help me put, go in the right direction, can help me use the right muscles, can help me understand that the you know, desired pattern that I want to achieve. So when we combine our ultimate sandbag, you know, first and foremost, like a lot of times we're creating tension. So we're not just holding the implement, we're doing deliberate actions with the implement as we're holding it. And I think that's one of the most misunderstood aspects of what we're doing. It's not just holding it in front of our body, it's not just holding it upon our fist, not just holding it by our side, but it's the specific tension techniques that we're using. And tension is a way to build stability. It's a way to connect the chains of our body if done properly. So, you know, we get a lot of feedback from the ultimate sandbag itself. And then if we use something like bands, we can achieve maybe feedback at something else. And in this case, we had a woman, she was in her 60s. She had such pain in her knee from squatting that she couldn't squat. In fact, she had gone to her doctor and said, and the doctor told her she's going to need a knee replacement. Now, she still may need a knee replacement. We're not working black magic here. <laughs> but, you know, by combining a, a technique that we use with our ultimate sandbag and bands around her legs, well, she was able to squat for the first time pain-free. And to see her eyes light up and the excitement that gave her is, is pretty impactful. And it wasn't uh, anything much more than we were giving her body feedback. So she'd load the right muscles of her body. And the loads between the band and the ultimate sandbag gave her that feedback to understand where to create movement and take pressure off the structures that she needed to. And she was able to do it really well with actually minimal extra uh, verbal cues from me, you know, of course, we try to be very concise with those. We still use those, but it's amazing to me how many coaches don't see the power that load can have in teaching people how to perform exercises correctly if given the right purpose and intent with the, the load. 
Yeah, exactly. And I know one thing that was definitely a light bulb moment for me with with my own training and then working with clients is that that idea of feedback. And I don't want to skip over that because I think that is such a, a powerful thing when you understand what feedback is providing you where, uh, like you said, a lot of people and a lot of clients I work with, they, even if they've worked out for a while, they don't really know what they're doing in terms of like what how the movement's occurring, what a squat should feel like, what muscles are engaging, whatever it might be. But when you provide them some type of, of resistance that is giving them specific feedback to, to challenge a movement or to, or to help them even, all of a sudden, now it's, uh, it goes from me teaching them to them learning, in which, you know, obviously that sounds like the same thing, but I can cue them, I can say stuff, you know, squeeze that, do this, do that. And until they understand what I'm actually saying and internalize it and use it in their body, it, it's going to look like nothing's changed. You know, when I first started training, it was a lot of, come on, tighten your abs or, or squeeze your glutes or squeeze your glutes. And, and I get frustrated, they get frustrated, and we're just kind of, neither of us are speaking the same language. But then I give them a, a sandbag to hold, create tension or a kettlebell to hold upside down or whatever it might be to all of a sudden, now you know if you did it right because you can feel it. And then now the light bulb clicks for them. And now I don't have to do as much coaching. Now it's more like just checking them and, and making sure everything's in place. They've just learned something themselves versus me teaching them. And that's why I love this stuff because it makes, it, you know, you mentioned black magic, right? It, sometimes you look like a magician because all of a sudden they got it and they've been working on this for a year. They couldn't figure it out. Now we just did one little thing. They figured it out and now they're going to keep doing it correctly over and over again. So it's such a powerful thing when we give them the right stimulus that they feel that feedback and then and then they can progress from there absolutely i mean it's it's uh you know when people are struggling usually it's the fact that they just haven't been taught you know these concepts and it's really a shame and that's why i said you know as an industry you know we need to raise our standards because we should be responsible and finding these better means and methods for those that are investing with us i mean we as professionals in our industry would be fr very frustrated going somewhere else, a different industry and not having the same level, level of expertise and understanding to what we're trying to do. And so the hard thing with fitness is it's such a young industry that it doesn't have the, the foundation necessarily that other industries have. And so hopefully we you know we can continue to be a part of building that up and then maybe 10, 20 years, we can have a very different type of industry going on where, you know, the professionals are being able to apply a service that's so much more valuable to people than maybe what a lot of people are experiencing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, everything that you're doing is definitely helping everyone raise their standards and, and get better, you know, the coaches to, uh, to the end user as well. Um, so let's, uh, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but uh, a lot of this is hard to kind of describe on a podcast, but uh, an audio. Um, like I mentioned, if uh, people visit your site, and, and we'll go over all those details in a minute, but uh, they can get tons of videos, tons of resources that you've put out there for free, which is awesome. Um, but let's say somebody has the sandbag, other than you know checking out your site and some of your videos, what do you recommend just getting started with? Uh, and, and how should I like implement this into my program first, maybe, or maybe a couple things? Well, this is a really tricky, you know, conversation. I appreciate the question. And I, it's just tricky in the sense of, you know, I always joke that I'm the worst salesperson in our company because <laughs> we always try to lead with education. And, you know, when people go to me, and they're like, hey, you know, I want to use sandbags. My first response is awesome. That, that's great. However, my follow-up is what are you trying to do? Uh, why are you using it? What do you want to use it for? Because what a lot of people don't understand that every implement has pros and cons to it. 
And so what we try to do is maximize as many of the pros while minimizing the cons, obviously. And with the ultimate sandbag, there's so many pros, but the cons can be challenging if you don't understand what they are. So let me really quickly outline a couple of considerations because the, it does function differently than most, actually function differently than how most people think is, is what I should say. Uh, I was going to say how most other tools function, but actually they don't. And I'll give you a prime example. So a lot of people get confused, for example, that we don't micro-load our ultimate sandbags. I mean, we don't add like two and a half pounds of sand and then five pounds of sand and then another two and a half. We keep relatively a stable load, and what we do is we manipulate other train variables. And that really throws people for a loop because so many people are used to just going up a little bit more in weight. But if you look at, in reality, there's only one tool, uh, free weight, I should say, in, in, a, in a gym setting that actually does that, which is a barbell. A dumbbell, there's, you know, we've all been in gyms, there's racks of dumbbells. Uh, kettlebells are the same thing. You'd have racks of kettlebells. And even bands, there's different tension legs, so you have to have different bands. My point is that most tools don't microload yet. Our dominating uh, sort of default in programming is just to microload things. And this was an idea I, I originally started getting from old time strongmen because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, iron was very expensive. So the idea of having many different weights wasn't practical for the most part. So they had to come up with other methods into which to challenge. Uh, you know, exercises and, and their strength ability. And what ends up happening is we have a much better scope of, uh, of training. And what I mean by this is that the foundational concept of strength training is progressive overload. And when I ask coaches what that means, they often go, well, it means I have to add more weight to an exercise than I had before. And I said, no, that's not what it means exactly. It means that you have to apply a stress to the body greater than it had before. Adding weight might be a variable that you use, but it's not the only one, meaning that things like range of motion, plane of motion, speed of movement, uh, holding position, body position, rest intervals, volume, all these factors play a part in progressive overload and either increasing the intensity of a workout or decreasing the intensity. So a reason that a lot of people plateau in their training is they only look at maybe one or two variables and don't understand how the other variables are impacting their ability to recover or progress in their training. So how that comes full circle to the, to the sandbag is that, you know, you have to understand that concept because how are we going to manipulate probably more of these other variables than just load to create different outcomes? And with the ultimate sandbag, we have not only load, but we have dimension and dimension will change stability. So, you know, the incorrect thought process is that sandbags are always unstable. Well, if they're smaller, more compact, they're going to be more stable, which is going to be more ideal for teaching certain movements than others. And bigger ones are going to be more unstable uh, especially if they're not filled with capacity because they have more movement to them due to their different dimension. And that will allow them to be optimized for other exercises. So it's not like a lot of cases like where people are like, hey, I'm going to use a 15-pound dumbbell exactly as I would probably a 45-pound dumbbell as soon as I can lift it. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of our sizes are going to be used differently. So it depends upon the size that people have. And then there's other little attributes, you know, you mentioned like, you know, we do realize there's other sandbags out there in the market now. You know, we started out in 2005 and it was funny. My first webmaster was like, you know, dude, we can't even use like sandbag training as a search for these search engines because no one's looking for it. <laughs> uh, so fast forward almost 15 years now and there's a whole bunch of stuff out there and there's a little nuances like, you know, for example, the width of our handles are that way for a certain reason. They work biomechanically with most people's shoulder uh, width. You know, which handles we grab are very specific because they'll change the outcome of the exercise. So again, it's, it's, 
it's so important to lead with the education component because if I just tell you to do this exercise and you don't have the right size, you're not grabbing the right handles and, and so forth, it will change the exercise. A, a classic example in our world is when we do cleans uh, or deadlifts and people tend to grab the snatch grip handles and we call them snatch grip handles to help people realize what they're predominantly used for. It's sort of like who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They're used predominantly <laughs> for snatches. Yeah. You get the idea that this neutral grip position that people, we want people to take with ultimate standing, when they pull the handles apart, they create tension in their lats, stabilizing their, their core, allows them to do cleans and deadlifts better. And that little difference changes dramatically the outcome of the exercise. So again, it's going to depend upon the weight people have, the size that people have. And I hate to be sort of elusive with the uh, answer, but it depends on many factors. We often tell people to start with smaller sizes, not just because the weight is lighter. I mean, I can kick people's butt with a 30-pound ultimate sandbag. It's just that uh, as you get bigger, the options start to change, and generally there's less that you can do with it because we try to increase the complexity of movement over time, not just load. So generally, like, there's two sizes. We tell people to have a bigger one and a smaller one, and that way you can sort of fill the whole gamut. And so what we sort of sort – of, to answer your question more directly, what we tell people to do is sort of learn about the implement a little bit first because – it's sort of something you said earlier. People get very frustrated if they don't understand what they're trying to do. Uh, you know, it, it, a implement itself. You know, you mentioned kettlebells. If I'm whacking my wrist to all day, I'm not going to enjoy using kettlebells. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a simple fact. You know, if I'm not putting bands around my body right and they're snapping against me, well, that's not fun. So it's really learning about the nuts and bolts of the tool. It doesn't take very long. You don't need to go to a certification of ours to get the foundation concepts if you just want to start implementing your programs. But if you don't understand where we're coming from and the system behind it, it's just going to become something that collects dust very quickly. So if people can sort of start with just like, hey, understanding simple concepts like how we hold the weight really matters. So which handles we grab? Do we grab the bag itself? Where do we hold it in relationship to our body? is really important. You know, how do we create specific tension? You know, breaking the handles apart, as I mentioned, is such a key cue we go back to. And immediately, it's funny how people feel stronger. They feel their back less just with that simple cue. So it comes down to, you know, a, heart, a lot of factors. But at the end of the day, it's going back to foundations. And so a lot of people, they just want to grab something and go. I understand that I've been that person, but I've also made, I've also realized how much a mistake that is and how much you leave on the table when you do that with a tool or a program without sort of investing a little bit into learning about what you're trying to do and why you're doing it. It's sort of as though you're trying to build something very complex without reading the instructions first, which we've all done. And what ends up happening is we all get incredibly frustrated and hate the process. <laughs> and if you just spend a little time reading the instructions, you'll be amazed at how much of a difference it makes to the experience as well as the results. Exactly. Like, this is why I cringe every time I go to Ikea. And uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to have to put that together and have a million pieces left over. Exactly. Not <laughs> that wooden dowel rod that doesn't fit anything, right? Exactly. <laughs> so... Um, so where, where, where would you recommend? So obviously, I, like I've said a, a bunch of times already, you have a bunch of great resources. Uh, so where can people go to start with the education? Now, uh, I know listening in, we have both just the average uh, uh, racer enthusiast that's just looking to train for a race and, and wants to learn how to incorporate these tools. But we also have coaches as well. So um, should they go to the same place? Are there different options depending on, on your background? I mean, I'll be very honest. We do write our blogs somewhat more so for the, the, the professional. However, having said that, it's sort of you know, 20 years of experience just in the industry, 
also tells me is that a lot of this information is new. So even for the fitness professionals, so I keep that in mind when I write. I always try to make it so that hopefully if my mom or dad read it, they would understand the gist of what we're saying. I don't try to talk and coach talk because I think that only services a much smaller part of the people that could benefit from this. So we take, you know, the old sign of like, they always say good teachers are people that make complex ideas accessible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we try to do is take these big ideas of how we move, how we function, how we perform and make them very digestible people. So spending time on our blog is really the best way to start and just reading a couple of things and then actually trying to implement them. You know, I think the mistake I've made in the past, and I'm sure a lot of people do, is they read so much they don't even feel like they know where to start. And, you know, it's something we joke about when we do our educational programs but in the live setting is that we always tell people you start at the beginning. If you're awesome at that beginning point, you know, DVRT is set forth to be a movement training map. You know where to go next. Uh, so it's just like, hey, if I know I'm doing this well, then I can go to the next step. It's almost like, going into a martial arts dojo where, hey, I can't go into a dojo being a black belt if I've never trained before. I go in as a white belt and I earn my progressions as I go through the process. So the blog is designed to give people tons of ideas. The biggest thing that you can do is simply just try it. Take, you know, read a blog, try the exercise that we're talking about, try being aware of the techniques that we're describing and being very mindful of what we're doing. Not just doing the exercise to do it, but doing it in the manner that we're describing because that's where you feel the big difference in sort of really understanding functional training versus like you mentioned, just sweating and sort of gutting it out. And it can have just such immense benefit to the OCR community because nothing disheartens me more than when people, you know, no matter what the implement is, they just use it haphazardly and they just feel like if it's the harder it is, the better it is. And that's often not the case. You know, we do a lot of work with the U S military and the number one goal a lot of times with the projects that we do with the military is injury prevention and reduction. And that is because, you know, there's an old saying in sports, the best ability is availability. Uh, so, I mean, if you are always injured, if you can't perform at your highest level because you hurt, and that's the first sort of strike against you that will always put you down against your competition. Uh, exactly. And I, and I think uh, the stuff you're putting out there is a great place for people to learn uh, the purpose behind what they're doing and to stay fresh. So you can, you can do this for a long time. Cause I know one thing I've really tried to put out there with this podcast is not just how to, you know, destroy your body in a workout, but how to use different tools and take care of yourself, recover properly, and move better. So we can race, have fun with the race, but also have fun with our kids, grandkids, whatever it might be, and, and not be limping through uh, Monday morning at work and, and not being able to do the stuff you want to do. So I'll put links in our show notes for for uh, your blog, uh, for the DBRT system. So if any coaches want to check out the program, all great stuff in there. But uh, coach, thank you so much for having uh, or for coming on here. It's been a, a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking to shop if you couldn't tell. <laughs> no, it was great. Makes my job easy. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that's going to do it for episode 55 of the OCR Underground Show. As always, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you found some uh, some of the tips and strategies in here useful. I uh, want to give a big thanks to our guest, Josh Hankins with uh, DVRT and Ultimate Sandbag for providing us some awesome uh, ideas and sharing his philosophy on, on training and, and moving better, as well as Anne LaRue for giving us the race recap. I also didn't get a chance to thank our sponsors, but a big thanks to Designer Protein and Mobilitas. Uh, Don't forget, you get a nice big discount with both of those. So if you're looking for any uh, protein products, check out Designer Protein. Use 
the code SDPremier20 and get 20% off. And with Mobilitas, use uh, OCR Underground 25 to get 25% off any of their mobility tools. Um, real quick before we end, Anne did mention, and we briefly talked about our mentorship program. And we, did, uh, we do stress heavily the off-season training, which we are approaching now, as well as in-season training, depending on where you are in, in, your, uh, in your program. And uh, in the show notes, you can check out a little bit more about the mentorship just at ocrunderground.com slash mentorship. But if you are looking for some, some tips and training tools to uh, help you stay on track, some accountability and the programs in which we write for you, it's uh, some great stuff in there. And uh, also, we are going to be doing uh, a free webinar on off-season training. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about our mentorship program, but really we want to give uh, an overall, just some good insight on what you should be doing in your off season and some things that you can focus on to really help you out preparing for next season. So uh, this will be held on uh, Monday, October, I'm sorry, Tuesday, October 23rd. We're going to be doing it at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we will record it if you can't make it, but just make sure you register to sign up so we uh, can send you the recording when we're done. Um, but again, just go to the show notes and you can find the link to register for for the webinar. All right, so I know long episode, tons of info. Hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.